Good afternoon, everyone. This is Dr. Dan Guerra in Authentic Biochemistry, podcast that brings you the published scientific literature directly to your iPhone and all other of your devices. Uh, what I do in this program and this podcast is I look at recently published scientific literature, primarily in biomedicine, and as a subheading of that, primarily biochemical or physiological or molecular genetic, hence the term uh, for the podcast called Authentic Biochemistry. And what I do is uh, look at the evidence that's published in the paper, discuss it against the backdrop of other evidence in a given research area, and then try to verify it and discuss it with you at a level that hopefully will both stimulate and educate at one level, and also will um, introduce new ideas, new concepts at the other side of the uh, spectrum. I want to do both of those things because I think that there's a real deficiency uh, for people to understand what science does, that is biomedical science, um, and how long it takes for that information uh, to filter down into medical practice. And so what I want to do is make a conduit between the two. So today, we're going to talk about something that I've been covering in my VerevMed lectures. That's another company I run, VerevMed. Uh, and what, what I do there is I do video lectures on YouTube. Uh, those are free. Uh, the business end of it is something we could talk about later. But there, what I do is I show you presentations, usually in the form of a PowerPoint, and we go through individual papers or review articles, and we show individual data and show how the data is collected, whether or not the data is done well, and examine how it fits into the framework of a given manuscript or series of manuscripts. Because this is all audio here at Authentic Biochemistry, at least for now, I'm not going to be showing you any data. And if I can't show it to you, I don't think it's the it's a particularly useful uh, way to interpret the research by telling you what the data looks like in terms of the figures that are in the in given published manuscripts. So what I try to do is make it more of a narrative, and that narrative then hopefully will uh, bring home what the current research is about. So today. We're going to talk about novel program cell death and how that's linked to neurodegeneration, uh, those kind of neurodegenerative diseases that I've been covering lately, both in authentic biochem and in Vera Med lectures, and that those are diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Um, so today we're going to talk about glutamic acid and how glutamic acid induces an enzyme called sphingomyelinase, and that that mediates a, an oligodendrocyte uh, pathway, which involves the destruction of those oligodendrocytes. So those are glial cells found in the central nervous system. They're not neurons, but they partake in the networking of what neurons do in the brain. And we discussed this at great length in previous lectures, so I'm not going to do it today. So, okay, so let's just get started. I'm going to be primarily referring to a paper that was published about a year ago in the Journal of Lipid Research, or JLR. It's one of my favorite journals because I'm a lipid biochemist by training. Oh, by the way, again, I'm Dr. Daniel John Guerra, and I'm coming to you from my studios in the Pacific Northwest, the United States. Today is actually the 25th of March, 2019, so timestamp it there. Back to the discussion. So apoptosis 
is a canonical program cell death. And it's executed in many different ways subcellularly, but it's, it's requiring enzymes that are known as caspases. And I will give you the explanation what caspases are in a moment. Now, if there's a disruption in that program cell death, I'm going to call PCD, and it can happen in various uh, ways and through various mechanisms, and it's often seen in developmental defects in developmental biology, uh, is such things as embryogenesis and postnatal uh, development. If you, if you corrupt program cell death during embryogenesis or postnatal development, you get developmental defects. So program cell death isn't just killing off cells that are damaged or infected uh, or aging. It's also a program to allow for normal development and differentiation in tissues and in whole organisms. Now, when, so what I, what I want to tell you is when uh, apoptosis is disrupted, something called necroptosis is imparted. And what that is, 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 a, is a pathway that leads to not apoptosis, which is a very specific kind of PCD, but necrosis, which is a kind that usually induces uh, an, an immune response that can include inflammatory uh, <clears throat> mechanisms. So when you get necrotosis, what that involves are a couple of different enzymes. They're called RIPs, which are receptor interacting protein kinases. Of course, RIP, think about it, rest in peace, right? These are death type of enzymes. So people that name these often like to be a little bit clever. So there are actually a couple of different types of RIP kinases. RIP1 and RIP3 are the most uh, ones most described. Those get deployed when you get necrotosis. So RIPs are, again, what are they? They're protein serine threonine kinases. And they interact with something called a RIP homotypic interaction motif. And what happens there is you get RIPK1 and RIPK3 phosphorylation. That then leads subsequently to a recruitment and activation of mixed lineage kinase domains, also known as MLKLs. Once that's activated, the MLKL, okay, that, that protein complex translocates to and disrupts the plasma membrane. Loss of membrane integrity during necrotosis results in the release of cellular contents, and that leads to inflammatory responses. This is where it's different from apoptosis, you see. Now, a couple of other proteins to think about. There's one called the FADD, F-A-D-D. And that's the FAS associated death domain. And what that is, an adapter molecule that interacts with cell surface receptors, such as TNF, uh, the tumor necrosis factor receptor, and also TRAIL. And that mediates normally apoptosis via the C terminal death domain. Okay. Now, once the C terminal death domain reacts with those receptors, those FAD, um, you get an eruption of the N-terminal effector domain that recruits something called caspase 8, which is one of these caspases I'll explain to you in a moment. And that turns on your canonical cysteine protease cascade, and that's all apoptosis. So FAD-mediated apoptosis inhibits the RIPK1-dependent necrotosis to ensure in studies where this has been examined, for example, a successful embryogenesis. So not going to sell these in mice, which suggested the importance of the FAD-D, not only in embryogenesis global, 
but also in early T-cell development. PCD is therefore required for maintaining homeostasis and a suppression of autoimmunity. That's during the education phase of T-cells, if you know your immunology. Now, the, the extrinsic pathway, uh, that's a, one of the pathways for apoptosis, extrinsic and intrinsic, is triggered by death receptors, or DRs, and those include things like FAS, FAS, and tumor necrosis factor receptor 1, in which the FAD adapter recruits caspase 8, and then that turns on apoptosis. So a little bit about these caspases so that you know what they are. They're cysteine aspartic acid proteases, so they're caspases, big family of these enzymes. And what goes down is the sequential activation of these caspases, and they play, of course, a central role in what's called the execution phase of cell apoptosis. Caspases exist as an uh, inactive proenzyme. Often you find this in catalytic cascades where if you had active enzymes rather than proenzymes, you would have no cell because the cell would be killing itself at the same time as trying to maintain itself. So these are inactive proenzymes. They have a pro-domain, and they have a large protease subunit, and they have a smaller protease subunit. So to activate these caspases requires a proteolytic processing, and that's a conserved internal aspartic acid residues, and yet what you generate is a heterodimeric enzyme consisting of both a large and a small subunit. That's why it's hetero. This protein is then involved in the PCD induced by THAS and by all kinds of apoptotic stimuli, which I'll mention briefly soon. The N-terminal FAD-D, like death effector domain of that protein, suggests that it may interact with FAS interacting uh, protein. That's the FAD-D I just talked about. That protein is detected in the insoluble fraction of affected brain regions. If we go through neurodegeneration linking in from the Huntington Korea's disease patients, but not in those from normal controls, which implicates a role in neurodegenerative disease. So, so I'm bringing some of these players in so you get why we're fi finally going to be talking about neurodegeneration. So just to compare, apoptosis, cellular condensation, these are characteristics of it. Membranes remain intact, particularly the plasma membrane, requires ATP, so energy is needed for apoptosis. Cell is phagocytized eventually, so there's no tissue reaction. You get a ladder-like DNA fragmentation, and in vivo, individual cells appear affected. That's compared and contrasted to necrosis, where you get cellular swelling. Membranes, of course, rupture. ATP is depleted. It tanks out. Cell will lyse, eliciting, of course, an inflammatory response. DNA fragmentation is random or it looks smeared on agarose gel. And in vivo, whole areas of tissue can go down or are affected. So you see there's a big difference between their apoptosis, local, quiet, specific, doesn't induce the immune system. Necrosis is more general, more, more opening up to adjacent tissues. It is really a very prominent or loud effect me mechanistically in that it induces an immune response. And so that's why you get whole tissue degeneration. So necrosis is a more elaborate phenomenon and less controlled. And so there are stages of apoptosis that involve stimulation. Usually some receptor is turned on. Then you get an intracellular response, some kind of signal transduction cascade, 
an activation of fresh transcription factors, an induction of apoptotic-related genes, of course, a release of calcium, and then that ATP starts to be used. So you guys start to see a depletion of ATP at the second phase of apoptosis. At the at, at apoptosis, frankly, happening, you get cell dismantling, DNA degradation or fragmentation, expression of phagocytic recognition molecules. Ultimately, you get a whole phagocytosis, and then ultimately uh, the cell dies. Now, if there is a persistent or there's a lack of phagocytic recognition, you can lead then to something called secondary necrosis. This is more of the pathway we're looking at today. And you release intracellular contents, and what you end up with there is inflammation, persistence thereof. Not a good thing. So what turns on any kind of cell death program? Lots of things, endogenous and exogenous, hence um, extrinsic and intrinsic, right? So sex hormones can turn on program cell death. That's like in development. Growth factor, same thing, particularly growth factor withdrawal. Genotoxic insults, cell cycle perturbations, genetic mutations, of course, and all kinds of death factors, which we've been talking about. All that then turns on some kind of death protease activity. So for necrosis, it was the RIPs, remember, uh, which were kinases, but are going to link to protease eventually. Uh, and then you get programmed cell death. All right. Now, there's this alternate inflammatory necrotic cell death mechanism. And it might actually serve to control overall cell survival in neoplastic disease. Okay. So here you got you to you understand this. We're talking about a necrotic cell death mechanism that actually may control cell survival during neoplastic disease. So neoplastic such as, such as say, glioblastoma or brain tumor. Okay. Both necrotosis and a new system I'm going to mention right now, ferritosis, which includes reactive oxygen, iron, and iron-dependent cell death, which I'm going to describe in detail soon, all of that can promote tumor suppression, okay? It can also involve neurodegeneration, though, and, is, and you see it in ischemia reperfusion, and it's particularly IR or ischemia reperfusion tissue injury. That's where you see this ferritosis, okay, where iron's involved and reactive oxygen is involved. So in the brain... Secession of blood flow, okay, that's ischemia, followed by reoxygenation, that's reperfusion, induces a complex cascade of events, and that involves basically a bioenergetics failure and an alteration in ionic homeostasis across all the membranes, and that results in excessive release of neurotransmitters, excessive release of them, and then particularly glutamic acid, and that is all sent out into the extracellular space. Extracellular Glutamate follows along the same trajectory as traumatic brain injuries or TBIs. And what goes down there is you get damage to oligodendrocytes, those are specific glial cells I talked about. But you also get damage to neurons, and you get damage to neurons by ex excitotoxicity because glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. So that's caused by sustained activation of ionotropic glutamate receptors and or by blocking uh, a, an antiporty system, which we now have to introduce. Remember, this is authentic biochemistry, so you got to keep up. And this antiporty system involves cysteine 
and glutamic acid. Okay. So the glutamic acids, plain old glutamic acid, amino acids, cysteine, of course, is going to involve the dimer up to cysteines via disulfide. So that system's called XC, XC. And that leads to an oxidative stress, and it's an amino acid anti-porter system, as I said, which imports cysteine, the oxidized form of cysteine. So that means it's a, it's a dimer of cysteine, the amino acid. That's why it's oxidized. Rather than sulfhydrose, you have an SS bond, right? And you send cysteine into cells with a one-to-one counter-transport of glutamic acid that comes out. It's composed of a regulatory protein called the SLC3A2. Um, it's linked by a disulfide bridge to a 12-pass transmembrane protein. And that's the SLC7A11, for those who want to look up these genes. And all that's credited for the transport of the activity of the dimer. Okay, The transport is driven by a transmembrane glutamate gradient, and it can be inhibited perhaps paradoxically, but like I always like to say, it's only pseudo-paradoxically, by extracellular glutamic acid, which is the only physiological inhibitor that's been defined so far. Again, this is all coming from the paper of Journal of Lipid Research, published in February 2018. Uh, that's actually um, issue 59, and I'm coming off page 312. I'm telling you this because you need to know that's what I'm talking about, right? So, Basically, so far, what we've, what we've been looking at is a system that starts off by describing apoptosis, programmed cell death. And then I'm telling you that that's a normal developmental system to help control tissue development and even organogenesis in a developing embryo and eventually into a developing organism. Apoptosis is also associated with killing off cells that are damaged or diseased. And that's a totally different way of, pro, of, of proceeding down the pathway of PCD, programmed cell death, than this necrosis or this ferritosis. Ferritosis involving reactive oxygen and iron, fenton reactions and all this, which we're going to get into now. So ferritosis is believed to be a distinct form of other kinds of regulated, it is def, definitely regulated cell death. So those other kinds we just mentioned, apoptosis, necrotosis, and of course you have autophagy, which I've talked extensively about in both Barrett Med lectures and a little bit here in uh, Authentic Biochemistry. Now all that are involved morphological, biochemical, and genetic mechanisms, as you might guess, hence fertile ground for authentic biochemistry. Ferritosis has been described as a form of regulated necrotic cell death characterized by excessive reactive oxygen species we call ROS, and the generation of those, so some generating mechanism, and an iron-dependent accumulation of, this is the coolest part, lipid peroxidation products. Why is that so cool? Because I'm a lipid biochemist. And everybody knows that in my myopic way, I say everything in biology is ultimately linked to lipid metabolism. It's myopic, but it also happens to be dead-on, laser-sharp, authentic, and true, because everything does eventually involve lipids. So, um, and of course, my bias is that I'm a lipid biochemist, and I have no problem being biased because it's authentic and true. Anyways, ferritosis can be induced through the inhibition, take this, the inhibition of the XC transporter, 
than the antiporter I just told you about. Cysteine in, glutamate out. And or by blocking, now here's another way you get ferritosis, glutathione peroxidase 4 function. Now glutathione is that tripeptide, and one of the amino acids in that tripeptide is cysteine, and another is glutamic acid, right? So right away, you get what I'm talking about here, that the precursors to glutathione synthesis can then be corrupted in such a way, maybe because of this antiport system, because of the excessive amount of the excitatory neurotransmitter glutamic acid, which has been generated, for example, by IR, right, ischemia reperfusion damage, right, such as in TBI, right, or other kinds of mechanisms. And all of that's going to then corrupt the glutathione mechanism. And glutathione peroxidase helps control peroxides. And peroxides induce tissue damage, just like hydrogen peroxide causes cell death, right? So the system XC negatively regulates lipid peroxidation, which means if it negatively regulates, means that you get more lipid peroxidation, where lipid peroxidation, sense restricted, was a bad thing, especially in the brain, right? And it does it by providing cysteine, a substrate for the biosynthesis of, you know, of course, glutathione, which is required for the activity of glutathione peroxidase, which reduces the accumulation of the phospholipid peroxides and it ultimately protects the cells, right? So you want to you wanna tank lipid peroxidation. And so taking lipid peroxidation is when the system XC is working normally. If you corrupt the system XC by bringing in a lot of glutamic acid into the system and not letting cysteine come in, that's where you lead to this ferritosis. Okay, cool. All right, let's go on. So what ferritosis looks like is you've got, again, glutamic acid coming out of this transmembrane domain, and you've got cysteine coming in. Now, what can block that system? is uh, the amino acid glutamate, extracellularly. There's also a, a protein called arastin, and then there are several drugs which will block that pathway that have been discovered errantly, I might add. Anyways, the cysteine is broken down as cysteine, and then the cysteine ultimately is used to make glutathione. When that glutathione is working, and you have the glutathione peroxidase isoform 4, and you have selenium associated with it, and that's all linked up to the mevalonic acid pathway, <clears throat> and there's a oligodendrocyte, that's the cell type we're talking about, <clears throat> then what that does, that glutathione peroxidase, functional, fully functional, will knock out lipid reactive oxygen species as peroxides. That's what I just said to you. I'm just explaining it to you again. So what you want is for that cysteine to get in there, and it means you have to have a functional system XC. And there are all kinds of small molecule inducers of ferritosis that have been examined. I just mentioned to you, <clears throat> one of them is glutamic acid. And there are things like sulfazizine and sorafenib. So there are drugs out there that are used for, say, uh, um, brain tumors, which can actually um, negatively impact the system XC. And, and of course, that's not a good thing when you're trying to kill brain tumors. Uh, so there are a lot of inhibitors and a lot of actually monoclonal antibodies that seem to have negative effects uh, or off-label effects of what you might want. So what you see here with glutamic acid is you get a glutamate-induced neurotoxicity. And what that is is an oxidative, biodependent process. And, of course, it suggests that ferritosis is involved uh, when you get iron, right, and you get an oxidative metabolism. Now, calcium 
chelators show no effect on this type of cell death. And that suggests that the glutamate receptor activation is not involved. This separates it from necrotosis, you see. In addition, the modulatory profiles of this protein erastin, of sulfazizine, the, the, the uh, drug, which is an inhibitor, specific inhibitor of the XC uh, system, were similar. See, that suggests that erastin might act as a system XC inhibitor, as a natural one, to initiate ferritosis. So erastin treatment abolished the import of radiolabel cysteine. This is an experimental result which is, of course, the substrate for the XC antiporter, and that confirms that that erastin doesn't need to inhibit it, okay? So we're getting close to where we're going to have to make a uh, stop-off point here, and we're going to have to resume later. We're at 24 minutes. I only get 30 minutes on these um, podcasts because uh, that's how I like to keep them. So I'm going to talk a little bit more, and then I'm going to stop, and I'm going to do part two. I mentioned one more thing. So there's an alternate inflammatory necrotic cell death mechanism, which serves to control cell survival and neoplastic disease. So that's the important thing to keep in mind. Extracellular glutamate following traumatic brain injury can cause damage to oligodendrocytes by excitotoxicity, and that's caused by sustained activation of ionotropic glutamate receptors and by blocking that antiporter we just talked about. So that's the thing that I want to be able to follow up on here. Uh, when we get to it. So I am going to leave you now and uh, stop recording. And then I'm going to give you this next set of authentic biochemistry right away so that you have both of them back to back so that we could finish off our discussion of ferritosis, that unique form of program cell death that you get in neurodegenerative diseases specifically associated with oligodendrocytes, that glial cell that we've been looking at. Because remember, oligodendrocytes are involved in myelination of certain axons. So this is all linking back to the various discussions we had in Authentic Biochemistry podcast, as well as in my Verevmed YouTube video lectures. So again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and I'm saying bye for now. And see you soon.